Well, good morning, Highcrest. If I haven't gotten the chance to meet you you yet, my name is Brian, and I have um, just honored to get to be with you here this morning. Um, I don't know about you, but this has kind of been an off week, right? We didn't have church last Sunday. Just weird stuff happens during the week, and now we got spring break, and there's extra kids running around, and you can kind of feel a little bit frazzled, but that's okay, because Peter wrote Second Peter for people who are frazzled. He wrote Second Peter for people who are struggling. And we are going to jump in to Second Peter today. And so if you will, turn with me, page 740 and 741, and we are going to get caught up real quick. We didn't get to do an introduction last week to Second Peter. We may have caught it online. But just in case you didn't, I want to catch you up where we are because I think it's important. There's something about Second Peter, there's something about Second Timothy, there's something about Deuteronomy, there's something about the last chapter of Joshua that makes me lean in a little bit harder. These are the last words that we have of these saints. Peter tells us this himself in chapter 1 at the end of this section in verse 13 chapter 1, he says, and it is only right that I should keep on reminding you as long as I live, for our Lord Jesus has shown me that I must soon leave this earthly life. Peter knows that he's about to die. And so he is writing to the church and he is giving them a message about how they will live. And in chapter 1, he gives them lots of instruction. He says in verse 5, he says, In view all of this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence. And with moral excellence, knowledge. And knowledge with self-control. And self-control with patient endurance. And patient endurance with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love for everyone. He says, the more you grow in these things, the more productive you'll be in your faith. The more fruitful you will be in your faith. And then he spends a couple of verses in 12 through 15 just saying, I need to remind you of these things. I need to remind you of these things. I need to remind you of these things. Why does he need to remind us of things? Well, I think he needs to remind us of things because we like to believe in stories. So that is a book that I had to read in high school. I don't know if you guys had to read this book. It's by Edith Hamilton, and it's called Mythology. Okay, And Mythology was a book that was written long after people believed in these myths, but it told about the stories. and had stories of Zeus and Hermes and Aphrodite and Eris and all of these gods that we no longer believe in, right? They don't, we don't hear their names anymore. These aren't stories that we hold to be true. But one day, they did. And they believed in these gods. And they believed if they sacrificed to these gods, if they pleased these gods, they would get the things that they want. And that leads me to why I believe we hold on to myths and clever stories. It's because we want something to be true in our lives. And we want something to be able to control And if we don't have things the way that we want it, we will believe stories, we will believe myths, we will believe things that allow us to have control over things and control over people and control over situations so that we will have something that pleases us. 
And Peter says, this is not the way you're going to live. And so we have a truth for you this morning. And if there's anything you take out of this morning, it is this one truth. Our faith is not a myth. We didn't create it. We get to believe it. We don't shape it. It shapes us. And so we're going to turn in God's word on page 741 to chapter 1 of 2 Peter. And we're going to be in 16 through 21 here for a little bit. He says, For we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we have sent missionaries to you, and we have sent letters to you, when we have been together and have been talking about these things, we have not given you myths. We have not given you cleverly devised stories about the powerful coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter continues and says, We saw his majestic splendor with his own eyes when he received glory and honor from the Father. The voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, This is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. We ourselves heard the voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter is talking about an eyewitness encounter that he had. Peter is saying, this is not a cleverly devised story. No, I saw this with my own eyes. And he begins to remind them about the transfiguration. The transfiguration is a story we find in three gospels. And it's a story where Peter and James and John are taken with Jesus up on the mountain. And he is transfigured in front of them. He is shown in his divine glory. They see in fullness who he is. They understand that he is not just man, he is the God-man. And they see him in a new way. But not only do they see him, they see Elijah next to him. And they see Moses next to him. And Peter, always the presumptive one, says, we need to, we need to build some houses, some dwelling places. The kingdom is coming. Everything is at hand. We need to get ready. And this voice says, no, this is my son. And he is dearly beloved. Listen to him. Now think about what happened there on the mount. You had Jesus up there with Elijah and Jesus up there with Moses. Moses is always associated with the law. In fact, we call the five books of Moses five books of the law. Elijah was a prophet. Jesus was standing between the law and the prophets as the divine fulfillment of them both. When we see Jesus, we see the Old Testament completely fulfilled. And Peter says, I saw this with my own eyes. In the book of 1 John, the first five verses, he says what we have seen, what we have heard, what we have touched, what we have felt. Believe us. This is what happened. And then in verse 19, he says, because of that experience, we have an even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. You must pay close attention what they wrote, for their words are like a light lamp shining in a dark place. Because of his experience on the mountain, Peter said all of those stories, they ring even more true. 
We have these Old Testament scriptures that we can cling to, that we can hold on. And my experience has testified that those are true. And then he says this, until the day dawns, in Christ the morning star shines in your hearts. Now this is really important. Because we're going to get to talking in just a minute about false teachers. We're going to start talking about people who want to give you myths. And this is the myth that this people was believing. They were believing that Christ was not returning again. And Peter says that we believe these things are true until the, uh, until the day dawns and Christ the morning shines in your hearts. Until you see him again, we're going to hold on to these prophecies. And he says this, Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came about from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No. Those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. Our faith is not a myth. We have the scriptures that testify to us about who our God is. And in these scriptures, we have eyewitness accounts of people who saw Jesus and their lives forever changed. Peter went from someone who was scared and denied Christ to someone who gave up his very life and now is on the brink of dying to write these words to us. These were not a myth for him, and they are not a myth for us. We couldn't create this. We couldn't come up with it. And because we couldn't come up with it, we are called to believe it, and to follow it, and to trust it, and to let it wash over us. We don't come to the text with a particular set of lenses trying to find the things that we want in it. We come to the text and let it read us because it shows us how to see Jesus. Our faith is not a myth. And so why are we talking about that? Why is Peter spending all of this time trying to reassure his readers that this is something that we can follow? Well, there are two realities we need to talk about this morning. And the first is that we are prone to follow myths. You and I are prone to follow myths. Paul talked about in the letter to second in the letter to Timothy, the second one that he wrote, that we look for things that tickle our ears. We look for teaching that makes us feel good. We look for teaching that allows us to have the path of least resistance. We look for teaching that is going to put us ahead and we are prone to follow things that are easy and that are simple and that bring us pleasure. And Peter knows that we are prone to follow those things. And he begins to talk, about, talk to us about the realities of false teachers. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, But there were also false prophets in Israel, just as there will be false teachers among you. False prophets are very common in Scripture. As you read First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, as you read Isaiah and Jeremiah, as you read Ezekiel and the minor prophets, there are these people who stand up and they claim to speak for the Lord. 
and they tell kings what they want to hear, and they tell people what they want to hear, and they lead people astray. And Peter is saying, that is not just a story that you have read in your Old Testament. That is something that is happening in your church right now. And I want to tell you, it is something that is still happening in the church today. There are people who come in and twist and turn the words of Scripture so that it will go in their own way for their own benefit. Peter continues, They will cleverly teach destructive heresies and even deny the master who brought them. In this way, they will bring sudden destruction on themselves. Even though their teaching is going to lead to their own pain, they ignore that or don't realize that, and they continue. Many will follow their evil teaching and shameful immorality. And because of these teachers, the way of truth will be slandered. In their greed, they will make up clever lies to get hold of your money. But God condemned them long ago, and their destruction will not be delayed. It gives one of the motivations right there in that text of why they come in and do it. It says they come in and they want your money. They come in and want to take hold of things that belong to you, and they want to make it their own. Be wary when someone comes and wants something from you. I don't want anything from you this morning. I want something for you. And what I want for you is for you to believe that your faith is not a myth. And people will do this. And it's not just the people that you turn on the television and you see them preaching something and you see them in a very nice suit and you see them with a very slick message with a number at the bottom asking for money. That's not what this is entirely talking about. That's false teaching too. But there's false teaching that is much more deadly. It's the kind of false teaching when your mentor shows up in your living room. My mentor, his name was Rick. I spent five years with him. I didn't want to be like Rick. I wanted to be Rick. I wanted to be just like him. I wanted to do ministry the way he did. I wanted to speak the way he did. I wanted to shape my life because Rick was everything I wanted in this world. And he came and he performed our marriage. And it was awesome. It was the most personal wedding marriage I had ever heard. I am not a crier. I was bawling like a baby. And one month later, he is in my living room. And he says, Brian, i got to tell you something. He says, I'm leaving my wife. And I'm leaving my ministry. And I'm going to pursue one of the girls that I've been ministering to. And you need to know that God is okay with this. And he is okay with this because I'm being honest with him. And God desires your honesty. And as long as you are honest with God, he will bless the path you walk in. And as a 20-year-old, not only was I crushed, I was not prepared to walk in that. 
It's not just pretty people on a television who are going to come in and try to twist things, getting you to come. It is people that you live and walk and have your being with that get led astray. It is people who come in and present as one way and they are another. And they will come and they will tell you things and because they sometimes have your ear, they can lure you away. And we are prone to follow them. We want things that are easy. We want things that we can control. And we want things that bring us pleasure. We are prone to follow these myths. And this is a big deal. And it's a big deal because two things hang in the balance. And they are rescue and they are judgment. Now 2 Peter chapter 2 is a chapter like we don't read very often. 2 Peter chapter 2 has got some very, 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 very strong language in it. But it's because God takes his church seriously. God takes his truth seriously and he will not allow it to be ultimately perverted. And so Peter begins to talk to this people about rescue and judgment. In verse 4. For God did not spare even the angels who sinned. He threw them into hell. In gloomy pits of darkness where they are being held without judgment. This is a reference that Peter made also in 1 Peter chapter 3. It's also a reference from Genesis chapter 6. About angels that were kept in darkness until the day of judgment. We don't have a great idea or a perfect idea of who they were, but what we know about them is that God had judgment for them, and they are being kept. And then we get to a couple of people we're a little bit more familiar with. Verse 5, And God did not spare the ancient world, except for Noah and seven others in his family, his three sons and their wives and his wife. So God protected Noah when he destroyed the world of ungodly people with a vast flood. Noah. We know that story. We think it's a children's story. When I had children, we bought them a little play school ark with little tiny Noah and little animals who all had smiles on. And they went two by two into the ark. Noah is a horror story. I don't think we should be laughing. It's dark. Noah lived in a time where everyone was walking away from God. Judges hadn't come around yet. We didn't have the language of everyone did what was right in their own eyes, but that's what they were doing. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and God said he was sorry that he had made man. And so God said that there is a flood coming. There is judgment coming. And here was Noah, who it was said to be righteous before God. He trusted in God. He was not a perfect man, but he had faith in God. And God said, you're going to build a boat. And he built an ark. And it took him years and years and years and years to build an ark. I want you to think about suffering. I want you to think about trying to hold true to something that you believe in when you have to walk through a couple weeks of of persecution. 
When you have to walk through a relationship that takes you about a year to get through. When you have a family member that for 12 or 15 years, things have just not been going great and they are are living a lifestyle that you don't want and they want you to join them and you push away and you have 12 or 15 years of grief. Here Noah had years and years and years and decades of being the only one who followed the Lord. These people were saying, what are you doing? It doesn't matter. You can live however you want. You don't have to build a boat. There's no need for it. We're not close to a lake. And Noah said, my faith is not a myth. And he built the boat and the door was slammed and the rain came down and judgment filled the earth. Judgment hangs in the balance for those who pervert God's truth. For those who follow their own cleverly devised myths. But for those who hang on to the hands of God, there is rescue that is sent down. And then we get to Sodom. And we get to Lot. Later, God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he turned them into heaps of ashes. He made them an example of what will happen to ungodly people. But God also also rescued Lot out of Sodom because he was a righteous man who was sick of the shameful immorality of the wicked around him. Now, I don't know how much you've heard of Sodom and Gomorrah, but Sodom and Gomorrah, when you hear those words, they still get used today. It's used of a place that is very dark and very depraved. And God took out Sodom and Gomorrah. But he saved Lot. And it described Lot as righteous. And that is a little weird because the the description we get of Lot isn't the most um, friendly in the book of Genesis. But here the Bible goes on to say something else about Lot. It says, yes, Lot was a righteous man who was tormented in his soul by the wickedness he saw and heard day after day. And so imagine Lot living in this city with his family amongst the depravity that was around him all day and being tortured by it, not knowing what to do about it. And we can oftentimes find ourselves there And then all of a sudden, we get the story of these visitors who came to visit Lot. And they're in his house. And they're banging on his door and they say, Take or give us these people that we may know them. And Lot refuses to give up the people. And then he does something even stranger, which I I still don't even know how to get my head around. He says, don't harm these men because hospitality is a big value. I will even allow my daughters to go outside. But the men prevented that from happening, and they were able to escape. In the midst of a world that was crumbling and falling down around them, Lot didn't have to give in. God provided rescue. And he got them out. Now this is going to be free because this isn't in the text, but remember Lot's wife. 
as they were running up to the hill, they were told not to look back. Lot's wife turned back. And in the context of Peter, do you know what that is? That is being prone to follow a myth. That is being prone to go back to that thing that we have been set free from. Peter tells us that we have ceased from sin. We have been ceased from the bondage of sin. We don't have to go back to it anymore. We don't have to be shackled anymore. We can be escaping and running away and running to the righteous rescue that God has for us. Don't turn back. He concludes this section by saying this. So you see, the Lord knows how to rescue godly people from their trials even while keeping the wicked under punishment until the day of final judgment. He is especially hard on those who follow their own twisted sexual desire and who despise authority. That is where myths lead us. Myths lead us to want to be in control. Myths lead us to believe that we can do whatever we want and it's not a big deal. I sat through a presentation on Wednesday night from a guy whose ministry is called Aware KC. And I got to tell you, for two hours I wanted to throw up. And he talked about the reality of human trafficking and sex trafficking and sex slavery in our country. And he talked about the reality in our state. 700,000 men have looked to purchase underage women in Kansas City. Is that close enough to home for you? This doesn't start with people coming in and saying, hey, buy things. This starts with little, small decisions that we make when we say, it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter what's going on. It doesn't matter because things aren't true. For the people in this text, it was that Jesus isn't coming back. Peter is going to go on to say he is coming back. It is true. You can sink your teeth into it. You can bet the house on it. But Peter wrote this 2,000 years ago. We now live closer to the day of Christ's return than ever before. And yet we act like he will never come again. And we allow people to come in and to tell us these little lies that your behavior doesn't matter, that your conduct doesn't matter, that you earn things, that you deserve things, that you deserve to feel good right now. You deserve to have life on your terms. You deserve to have something that will bring you pleasure and you sit in front of a computer screen. And then all of a sudden, that doesn't satisfy you. And you do it more times and more times and then you need something more and more and more because nothing that these myths sell you will ever satisfy your soul. The only thing that will satisfy you is your Lord Jesus Christ. And he is coming. He is coming back 
And this is why Jesus tells the story about the master who had to go away for a little while. And he left a servant in charge. And the servant got high on his horse and thought it didn't matter what it meant to treat his other subjects. And so he began to treat them harshly and began to beat them and do whatever he wanted because he despised authority and wanted control. And all of a sudden, the master of the house came back. And what does the master of the house come back and do? He provides judgment for that servant and rescue for his people. And so what do we do? What do we do in the meantime? First thing I want to tell you to do, and I don't have it up here, I apologize. You need to adjust your eyes. You need to adjust your eyes. Because oftentimes, you're looking at that. Oftentimes, you are looking at a wolf in sheep's clothing. You are looking at someone who comes in and sounds good and it sounds fun and it sounds like something you can sink your teeth into, but it's just trying to sink their teeth into you. Your gaze should not be down. Your gaze should be up. Adjust your eyes and fix them on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. The second thing I want to tell you to do is to take your supplements. Take your supplements. We need supplements nutritionally because we don't have everything that we need. And we need vitamins and things to come in and to provide us with with a healthy balance so that we can continue to live. And we need supplements in our faith. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, he lists these supplements to you. And you are to be growing them and putting them into your life on a regular basis. Are you putting virtue into your life? Are you putting knowledge into your life? Is God bringing to you self-control and godliness? Is he growing you in steadfastness? Is he growing you in brotherly affection and love? Peter says, if you see these things in your life, you are being fruitful. And you can look forward to that rescue. And if these things aren't in your life, I would say, hey, what do we need to do to start having some conversations so that we can add these supplements to your lives? And then finally, I want to end with this. You need to remind yourself and you need to remind others. Peter wrote this book to remind. He said, I'm doing this before I die to remind you. These are his dying words. Don't you lean in to someone's dying words to what they have to say. And here Peter, who is about to be crucified upside down, is looking at you and he's saying, remember, 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 your faith is not a myth. You can trust in this. In fact, you can bank your whole life on it. Take your supplements and adjust your eyes. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the words of Peter. And I thank you that we have an opportunity to stand for truth and to stand for you and to stand with you no matter what is going around. Father, I confess that I am prone to follow myths.
that I am prone to want life on my own terms, that I am prone to want things that will make my life easy. But Father, you haven't called us to that. You have called us to follow you. You have called, called us to hang on to the hand of Jesus when life gets hard because we can trust that there is a rescue coming. Father, while we wait for that rescue, may we remind ourselves and remind others of who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.